Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? And then we're going to look at the word of God together. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh God, we thank you for the reality of your word, the power of it. And we are in need of your word this morning, Lord. We are. We just, we don't altogether know our needs, but we know that our need is you. And we do ask, Lord, that you be pleased to open your word to us, speak to our hearts. We pray for an anointing upon the speaking of your word and the hearing of your word. Cleanse us from any sin, Lord, anything that would get in the way and interfere with our communion with you this morning in your word. Lord, we look to you. We thank you that you do great things. Lord, we ask that you would do great things among us this morning. By faith, we want to stand in to that anointing which you have provided for us, one for us at the cross of Calvary, that we may know the enabling of God for speaking the word of God and for hearing the word of God. We ask that the word, Lord, might be mixed with faith, and as a, as a result we might obey all that you bring to us by your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last number of weeks I've been speaking, I think the last 19 weeks I've been bringing the Word of God here on a Sunday morning, we've been looking through the book of Ephesians, which I plan to do next time I speak. Um, God willing, in a few weeks' time again. But for today, what I wanted to, to do is turn your attention to the book of Romans and chapter 6, please. And as we're thinking very much about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus from the dead, there's a little phrase that came to my mind in the week at the end of verse 4 that I felt the Lord had put on my heart that we might look at together this morning. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we're looking at newness of life in Christ. Newness of life in Christ. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And it is really that last phrase I want us to focus on this morning just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But just to get to that point, we need to go back to the beginning of the passage to get some context. And Paul begins chapter 6, verse 1, by saying, What shall we say then? Or what shall we say to these things? What shall we say then? That phrase, that question, refers back to something that Paul has obviously previously said in chapter 5, and particularly verse 20. He's going, to, he's going to go on to say, in 6 verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So let's go back to verse 20 of chapter 5 and see what Paul is speaking about here. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then to these things? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? You see, Paul is dealing with a potential argument that's going to come up against him as a result of what he's said in chapter 5, verse 20. He's basically said, sinners abounded greatly. When the law came in, sin was increased. When the law comes in, we're 
more we, we are guilty in great measure because we reject the law of God, don't we? And so the sin increased. But where sin abounded, grace abounded beyond that sin. Thanks be to God for that. But now Paul's aware that there could be a misconception of what he said or some mischief that's going to be caused as a result of such a statement. And some will say, well, if my sin increased means that God's grace is abounded more because of the greatness of my sin, that gives more glory to God's grace, right? So why don't I just keep on sinning? Because if I sin more, that means God's grace must cover more ground. And because God's grace covers more ground, that gives more glory to God. So why shouldn't we sin so that grace may abound? It's all to his praise and to his glory. You see the argument. That's what Paul's dealing with here. And there's a modern form of these kind of arguments and strains that come in right today. It's so up to date, the word of God, isn't it? The same sort of arguments that came out in the days that Paul were writing are the same sort of arguments we deal with today. Maybe different strains or different subtle um, differences, but still the same sort of thing. I'll give you an example of a modern form of these kind of thoughts concerning the grace of God. And it goes like this. The grace of God is so great that it's not about how I live because God loves me anyway. I'm saved by his grace so I can live in a way that I want to live because I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Do you see? Have you ever heard anybody say, it's okay for me to live like this because I'm not under law? You're under law. I'm under grace. You know, and it's so true. I've got friends who will testify to this who used to be in certain churches where, well, loose living wasn't really dealt with, shall we say. And when this particular brother I'm thinking of um, would say something about not living in a godless way, he was immediately criticized for being legalistic. Isn't it amazing? You say, well, you're not, the Bible says we shouldn't do that. We should not get drunk, the Bible says. You're legalistic. I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Now these things are said today, friends. I'm not pulling this out of the air. And so there is this propensity today in some circles to try to use grace as a leverage whereby I can live licentiously and in the way I want to live. That's not the grace of God, friends. The grace of God is not given so that I can live free of any spiritual law in the word of God. The grace of God is given so I can live the way God wants me to live. And I'm no longer under the power of sin's dominion over my life. And when people say, I'm not under law, but under grace, they totally take that scripture completely out of context. Because if they knew the whole verse, it says, we sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So you see how grace is often misused these days. Grace isn't a green light to live how I want to live. Grace is the ability for me to live God's way. Because actually it's sin that makes us miserable. And if only we realize that, well, we do realize that. If we've really been genuinely born again of the Spirit, there's a realization that sin doesn't help you at all. It's the means of misery for every person on the earth, isn't it? And it's a means of death coming in by, by sin. So Paul then is dealing with some of these kind of issues even in his day. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then in verse 2, he gives the rhetorical question, the answer. By no means. Now the phrase by no means basically um, can be translated like this. Away with the thought. Away with the thought. May it never be. Now this expression is the strongest Greek idiom for repudiating a statement. And it contains a sense of outrage that anyone would ever think that that statement was true. It's a very, Paul is speaking emotionally here. This is a very strong phrase from the Greek. Never let it be. You can almost feel Paul's unhappiness with such a thought. Never let it be. No. 
No, sir. No, madam. We cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. Perish the thought. And then Paul goes on to say why. And he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, isn't that an amazing statement? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You see, this phrase is basically a description of what has happened to somebody when they've been born again of the Spirit of God. When you're born again of the Spirit of God, you become dead to sin and you become alive to God. Now, do you remember before you were saved, you were in the Ephesian 2.1 position where you weren't dead to sin, but you were dead in sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. Do you remember what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 1? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was you, my friend, before you converted. If you've been born again of the Spirit, You were dead in your sins. You were dead to God. You were dead toward God and you were alive in iniquity. And Paul is saying when you're converted, you become dead to sin and alive to God. Total transformation. Total difference. Total change. It's not a subtle change. Christianity isn't a subtle change. You know, like, people begin a new year. I'm sure it'll happen at the end of this year, into next year. People begin a new year and say, I'm going to make New Year's resolutions this year that I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. And they manage to keep it up, perhaps for a few months. Maybe they keep it up for a while. We are not talking about anything to do with a person making resolutions to live a slightly more moral life. We are talking about an absolute and utter and complete transformation. That's what we are talking about. You can't get any more difference from being dead in trespasses and sins and dead toward God to being made alive toward God and dead toward sin, can you? That's why when somebody says, I've been born again, there has to be, by definition of that statement, an element of change that is evident to all, to everyone. It may be that before they were a Christian, they were foul-mouthed. And when they came to Christ, all the filthy language just went from them. Or maybe they were bitter before they came to Christ. And they were just full of arguments and full of hatred. And they came to Christ. And then the spirit of love transformed them. And they're totally different. But there is obviously this matter of sanctification whereby we're changed over a period of our our whole lives. We're not going to be totally perfect to the moment we're born again of the Spirit. We begin on a new journey. But nonetheless, there must, listen to me, there must be a difference. That is the result of the Spirit of God entering into your life and making you a new creation in Christ. You're dead to that sin nature that once dominated you, once led you in every direction it chose to do so. It was king of your life and you obeyed it. And you were following the spirit of this world. And with everybody else, you were on the way to hell, merrily, according to your own leadings and the leadings of your, the impulses of your flesh and the enemy and the world. Everything was drawing you towards hell. You were living unto yourself. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then a something glorious happens. You get to verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2. And it says, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy. He didn't save you because he saw in you something of a desire to get right with him. You and I had no desire to get right with God. And any little impulse of a desire to get right with God was put there by God in the first place. This is the mercy of God. 
Otherwise, salvation doesn't become a means of mercy. It becomes a means of granting something on the basis of something else rather than the mercy of God. But our salvation isn't based on anything done by man, but by God who shows mercy. The fact that you're born again is the mercy of God. There's no reason why God should save you. There's no reason why God should save me. I didn't give any reason that God should save me apart from my sin and my rebellion. That's all I could give God. And then the Lord stepped into my life. And he stepped into your life. And he decided on one day, Brother Allah, that the Lord was going to have mercy on your soul. And he did. And he did. Thank God. This is the wonder of our salvation, friends. It's not based on anything in and of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Haven't we? Do you realize that? (laughs) We're all sinners. Do you know what Paul said? Let me read you a statement that Paul says. It's a confession and it's something very illuminating for us. Romans 7, 16 says, Now, um, I, if, if, uh, sorry, it's not verse 6, I think. No, he says, I know that in myself dwelleth no good thing. Now, I can't quite find the verse for that at the moment, but it does actually say somewhere in chapter 7, Paul says, I know that in me dwells no good thing. If anybody can find it. 18, thank you so much. Verse 18, praise the Lord. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. That's what you are before you're born again. You're in your flesh. Nothing good dwells. If nothing good dwells in you, even the good that you do isn't good of itself because it's not toward God. But when God gets hold of us, he gives us heavenly desires and changes our lives, doesn't he? Well, praise God. Going back to Romans chapter 6 then. How can we who died to sin, that sin nature, live any longer in it? So basically, when you're born again of the Spirit of God, you become dead to that old way of living. And then in verse 3, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, but the word baptized there means to be immersed into Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful statement. To put on, to be totally clothed in Christ Jesus is the word that's used for baptism in water, isn't it? And also, um, we could think of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being clothed, endued with the Spirit of Christ, totally, the, the Spirit totally coming upon us. In the same way, when we're born again of the Spirit of God, we know something of being clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say that we were baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Do you not know this, he says in verse 3. Oh, friends, you know, I love the way that Paul speaks, don't you? Do you not know this? Do you not know this? That's a phrase that is sometimes used by Paul throughout his writings, Not knowing is an absence of knowledge, isn't it? If you don't know certain things, it means obviously you haven't knowledge in that specific area. Now there's areas in our walk with God where we may be absent of knowledge. And if we're absent of knowledge in a particular area, we can be prone to deception in that particular area. If you don't know, therefore, the Word of God, if you're not meditating, studying, reading through the Word of God, there can be areas in your life that you have no right knowledge over and so can be going astray to a measure can be deceived. There's a verse in um, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 13 where the apostle, uh, sorry, not the apostle, where the prophet puts this. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 13. It's actually the Lord speaking. And he says this, 
Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Exile means being in a place of restriction other than the place that you would rather be in. And you and I can come into a measure of restriction in our Christian life through lack of knowledge. You know, in the book of Hosea, chapter 4 and verse 6, it says that my people go, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We don't want to be in a place where we lack knowledge, do we? We want to be those that know the word of God, not so that we get big heads. You know, on the other end of the scale, the word says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. But without knowledge, you're going to go astray, right? You need knowledge and love combined together so that you use the knowledge the right way. But without the knowledge of the word of God, we go astray. astray. Why is there so much deception that has come into the church? Because there's little paying attention, I suggest, to what the word of God actually teaches and says and prescribes and commands. And if only we lived in the light of the word of God, what a difference it would make to our conduct, to our lives, to our well-being, actually. But we don't pay attention to the word of God as we ought, do we, in these days? May the Lord grant us by his grace to come back to these things. But coming back to Romans 6, verse 3, do you not know that All of us who has been immersed, baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. There's something of a uniting here. And then he goes on in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were buried, therefore, verse 4, with him by baptism into death. When you were baptized in water, that essentially was your burial service, and you were confirming something that had already happened in your heart, namely that you died to your old way of life. Now, when you bury somebody, it means that they've died. And when we're baptized in water, it means that we've died. We're saying to people and to this world, I'm dead to the globe and the globe to me. I'm alive to Christ and, 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 and I'm a different person. So you go into the water, you have your burial service, and you come up with the understanding of your life being new. Not that water baptism of itself does that, but it is a definite outward confirmation of something that has already been established in the life of that person being baptized. So we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order for something. Why why did we come into the Lord's death? Remember, we've said already that somebody who's been born again is somebody who's died to their sin nature. And then he goes on to say, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're associated in the Lord Jesus in his death. He died and we died to our old nature. Jesus didn't die to his old nature, of course. He died for our sins, but We were placed into his death and also we are associated in the same way when we become saved, when we're born again of the Spirit of God, we are saying we have now died to our old way of life, just as Christ died. But Christ didn't just die. He was raised by the glory of the Father. And he was resurrected. He didn't just come back to life, he went on to resurrection life. And as you come out of, your, out of that place of death, as it were, into newness of life, you're not just coming back the same person you were before you were saved. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. You're a different person now. You're transformed on the inside. You're not just a better you as you were before. You, as you, the person you were before has been written off. Thank God, it couldn't do anything anyway. The old nature couldn't fulfill the law. It was, it was sent to death under God's judgment because it wasn't able to reach the law. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. doesn't matter how well we've done it. The, probably the best person who's walked the earth, 
living her closest life to the law would be Paul the Apostle, who basically said, as touching the, as touching the law, blameless. Now, not many of us could say that, but he said that. I mean, at one point, there's an inference, isn't there, about the fact that he struggled with covetousness. But he was a man who reached an extremely high standard of self-righteousness. And he says in Philippians 3, I count it as rubbish. Actually, the Greek's quite crude. But it counted as absolute dung, rubbish, having nothing to do with that. That I might gain Christ. That's why. Better to gain Christ, isn't it? Then stick to your old self-righteousness. So then Paul goes on to say, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. What a wonderful statement that is. We too might walk in newness of life. Now, some of your versions will say something like this, that we should walk in newness of life. However, that gives the inference that what Paul is speaking about here is the Christian's conduct in his walk with God, but that's not really what Paul is talking about here. The newness of life does not refer to a new quality of experience or conduct but to a new quality of life imparted to the individual. Paul is not dealing here with Christian behavior. When you look at Paul's writings, they often Christian conduct and behavior is often towards the end of his letters. He gives spiritual meat and food, and then he talks about how to apply those things later in the letter. Ephesians is a wonderful example for that. You have him speaking about all the spiritual blessings in Christ. You have him speaking about being saved by his grace in chapter 2. Wonderful, glorious blessings, spiritual. Oh, it leaves you in the heavenlies. And then you get a bit later to chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, and you have a lot more practical things coming in. For example, how children are to teach, uh, to to respect their parents, you have, you have Paul speaking about not being drunk and things like this, practical behavior. But earlier on, you have the doctrine and the glorious teaching of the word uh, concerning the life in Christ. Well, the same is here too. Paul in chapter 6 isn't so much speaking of behavior. He goes on to talk about that in chapter 12 through 16. You can read the practical outworking of these things in those later chapters. But the earlier chapter here, chapter 6, is if you like dealing with what happens to a person when they're saved. Do you not know? Paul's referring to things that should they should know have already happened to them as believers. You're dead to the sin nature. That's in nature that once had control over your life. Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he finishes chapter 5. And we're no longer under the reign and tyranny of sin nature. We are under the reign of of the Lord Jesus Christ and now have the power through his life in us to live a way we could never live before, in other words, to the glory of God and to his praise and for his honor. Blessed be his name. So this newness of life, what is it referring to then if it's not referring to the way we should live? Well, I like the way in this particular verse that the ESV puts it. We too might walk in newness of life. Not that we should walk as though there's somehow an attitude to adopt. There is, but that comes later. What Paul's speaking about here is this glorious new life that is yours in Christ. And there's so many things that we could speak about concerning this life, dear friends. Firstly, let let me remind you what the scriptures say concerning this new life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, I've alluded to it already, but why not read it again? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. That's what the word means. The scriptures say, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This new life, this new nature, this new way. 
It's all in the Lord Jesus. And it's just as he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we have been raised to newness of life and a life that's totally different from the one that we had before. This new life is a new creation. It's something that God has done. It's something that he has brought about. If it's a new creation, it means God did the creating. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what we're created for. But the truth is we are created by God. We are the sheep of his pasture, aren't we? He has made us and not we ourselves. Do you remember? It actually says that in Psalm 100. Well, this is the wonderful thing about our salvation. It's the Lord's doing. It's the Lord's work. And then we go on to read in Galatians 2 verse 20, the statement that we all know so well. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a wonderful statement. If you've been born again, you've been crucified with Christ. United with him in his death. Crucified with Christ. You no longer put any confidence in the flesh for your salvation. You put no assurance in your natural ability to work any form of righteousness that will be pleasing to God. Because you know in your heart all your righteousness of itself is as filthy rags. It cannot please God. The only righteousness that you know can please God is the righteousness of Christ. And by faith, as you've been born again of the Spirit, that righteousness has been been imputed to you as your righteousness. And you are clothed in Christ In his righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. In him. What a wonder this is. Where so many religions on the face of the earth are doing their level best. People striving, straining. With all their might and zeal. To reach a form of righteousness that will appease the anger of the God we believe in. And then we can say to such people, you can cease your striving. It's not going to do you any good. There's no salvation in your own efforts. You're flawed from beginning to end. You need a saviour. And thank God Jesus Christ has come. And he lived a sinless life. And he died on the cross to deal with that wrath of God that righteously was against you. Jesus bore the weight of that wrath upon himself so that we could be saved from that wrath and therefore have his goodness imputed to us by means of faith in his goodness. That's the Christian faith. That's the Christian faith. And actually I remember, I remember seeing people so zealously when I was in Jerusalem, when I was um, at, the, at what's known as the Wailing Wall, and you see some of these dear folk praying with all their zeal and your heart breaks for them. And you sort of think your Messiah can be known to you if your eyes are open to him. And thank God many are coming through in Israel, to realize the Lord Jesus is their Messiah. Hallelujah for that. That's a wonderful thing. But we don't reach righteousness by means of the law or by self-exertion. Nobody's saved by self-exertion. You can read that in Romans 9 or you can read about it in John chapter 1. Either way, there's no element of self-effort that can possibly save anybody. But is the Lord merciful to that person? Does the Spirit come? And as the Spirit comes, that person sees their need. And their hearts are opened to Christ, like Lydia's was in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. Her heart was opened that she might pay attention. Do you know, very often, I can be speaking in certain places, and you know, particularly, when some people are probably not born again because they take no interest in anything you say. They just sit there with their eyes to the ground. They're not interested. 
but somebody who is on the way even suddenly finds their attention is totally towards something that they never gave attention to before. And they know it's not them giving the ability to pay attention to it. They're somehow caught up with something that's being said in a way that they were never caught up with what was being said before. They could have been in a thousand services before, but they were never caught up. Somehow their heart's been grasped by something. And they're not able to even put it in words. But what is, what is happening is the Spirit is drawing that person. By the grace of God, is drawing that person, drawing them to himself, causing them to see, causing them to be convicted. And they start weeping about things that they previously didn't even believe were true. Because the Spirit of God is bringing that person right through to himself. Bringing that person to the end of themselves. And into a new life in Christ. Paul says... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lived. Before he was born again of the Spirit, Paul was living zealously for God. But it was Paul doing the living. When Paul was born again of the Spirit of God, he gave up, gave up his own natural ways. And threw away his self-righteousness that he might be baptized with Christ. Immersed in the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful experience he had of the Lord changing him. But this is the Christian life. You see, the authentic Christian life is not me living for God in and of myself. It is God by his spirit living through me. That's the Christian life. The secret to true Christianity is realizing that the old nature cannot live the Christian life. I need a new nature. I need the Spirit of God to get into me. I need to be transformed. I need him to do it. There's no authentic Christianity without Christ. How is it possible? You can have a religious Christianity... You can adopt certain behavioral patterns that is compatible with Christendom, but that doesn't change your heart. It simply changes a form of conduct. But that conduct will not be lived unto the glory of God in the way God wants it to be lived until God puts something of his life in yours. And that's the new birth. So this is what Paul is saying. I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's so personal. Can you say it? Do you know that? Is that your experience? Can you say with Paul, I know Christ has died for me. I know he loved me personally. If you can say that, if you know that in your heart, without any form of contradiction, what has fear got an opportunity with? <laughs> or condemnation? No must be done with those things. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. So this is the Christian life, Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. That's the Christian life. Now in Ezekiel chapter 36, we have something of the way the Lord deals with a person in order to really bring them through in their new life. And it's a wonderful thing. It's obviously relating here to the people of Israel and there's going to be a wonderful day when the fountain that we've drunk of becomes theirs to experience in full and there's going to be a glorious revival amongst the Jewish people as they realize the Lord Jesus is their Messiah. 
However, this glorious new covenant that's spoken of here in Ezekiel 36 also has included us Gentiles. Let's put it, I haven't phrased that very well, but this covenant with the Jewish people has been opened up for Gentiles to come in. That's why we who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've been included in on this glorious covenant, this new and eternal covenant. What do we read about it in verse 25? I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. What a wonderful truth that is, isn't it? And that's what happens to us when we're born again of the Spirit. We are cleansed, washed from all the stains, from all the filthiness that we were enveloped in and it was in our own hearts. We've been cleansed. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is a tremendous statement. And here this word is written to those who of themselves were not able to transform themselves. Quite clearly. And it's written to us who are not able to transform ourselves. We've been sprinkled clean. We've been washed. The water of the word is spoken of in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We read in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. A glorious statement along this line. It's worth just having a look at. Timothy, Timothy, Titus. <laughs> 3 verse 5. Let's read from verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We've covered that matter before. But according to his own mercy. We've covered that matter before. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 4. How has he done it? How has he saved us? Well, not by our works of righteousness, not by anything we've done in and of ourselves, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If that sentence of Scripture doesn't encourage your heart, I don't know what will. This is tremendous. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how we have been washed and cleansed. Well, back to Ezekiel chapter 36. And particularly... Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart. A new heart. You see, before we're born again of the Spirit, friends, we have a heart that is hard and rebellious. Stubborn. <laughs> Some of us think we're uh, little angels, really. <clears throat> And the word of God shows us that deep down, I'm sorry to put it like this, we are rotten to the core. That's what we're like. Utterly rebellious. And if I may be so bold to say, haters of God. That's what you were like in your flesh. Whether you realized it or not, I'm not trying to make my own view of what you were like before you were saved. I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says this is what you were like. Hard, rebellious, stubborn, and a hater of God. And therefore under the wrath of God by nature. 
our hearts are deceitful above all things. Don't you find that an amazing statement? In my natural man, in my flesh, I have a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Not just wicked, that would be bad enough for me, but desperately wicked. And then you hear people say, oh, well, I know some people who aren't Christians and they're really, really, really nice people. When somebody says that, you know completely they don't understand the things of God. Nobody's talking about being nice. But just ask whether that person has done their good deeds out of means of love to God because God put that love in their heart in the first place. And they will say, of course not. Well, then they don't love God. It's amazing how nice people can be, actually, when you speak to them until you tell them that their own righteousness won't get them to heaven. And then the, their face starts changing. You noticed? They don't look so kindly at you. The halo slips from over the head and they start as if to say, Are you saying that I'm not good enough to get to heaven? I do more good deeds than you do. All of that kind of thing. Self-worked righteousness. This is out of a deceitful heart. The idea that I can work anything of myself that's good enough for God and somehow circumvents the work of Calvary is blasphemous. That's what it is. It's wicked. It's wickedness. I'm effectively saying, I don't need Jesus to die on a cross for me because I do good deeds myself. Now, they'd never put it in terms like that, but that's what they mean. That's effectively what it comes to. Two plus two equals four, friends. Just put the mass together. But that's why there is an offense to the gospel. The offense is you're not good enough and you're a sinner deserving of hell. And unless God has mercy on your soul, you'll stay that way until you get to hell. That's our disposition. We deserve it. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? There's almost a depth to the iniquitousness. It's not, not really a word, is it? But the iniquity of our hearts. I'm just trying to put it across. There's a depth to the iniquity of our hearts that we can't even plumb the depths of. Now let me ask you a thing. Do you really believe Jesus would come to this earth that the Father would give up his Son and slay the innocent for the unrighteous if the unrighteous could get to heaven without the innocent being slain? Of course not. We don't know the depths that it cost the Father to slay his own Son. I tell you, just try and imagine you doing it to your own Son. couldn't even think of it. God has done this to his own son. And then for me to say, well, I can make it to heaven, thank you, is the height of arrogance and shows forth the rebelliousness of my own heart and the deceitfulness of it. So, dear friends, Christianity isn't about trying to become a nice person of yourself. That's why we died when we became saved, because the old nature cannot please God. Okay. I will give you a new heart. Oh, hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for that. Thank you, Lord, because I can't save myself. And a new spirit I will put within you. I'm going to transform your inner thinking. I'm going to transform the way you see things, perceive things, understand things. And I will remove the heart of stone, that stubborn, rebellious hardness 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a heart that responds to me. There's nothing harder than dealing with somebody who's hard. It's almost impossible. You can't do anything with a person who's hard. They won't respond. What they need is for that heart to be taken away and for a new heart to be given to them. And that's what happens. Everything becomes new, remember. New creation. Ephesians 2 verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. Galatians 2 verse 20. And Ezekiel 36 verse 26. All there. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. Oh, this is a miracle. Why should God put the Holy Spirit in me? Can you understand why God would give you the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's almost unthinkable, but it's in the word of God. God actually comes to reside in man. Such condescension. What mercy. I will put my spirit within you and look what this says. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the new covenant. The new covenant means that the Lord doesn't leave the word of God on tablets of stone whereby we try in our fallen state to obey them and find out through those laws we are more sinful than we thought we were. All that, the law and everything, is the, is the law is the tutor to bring us to an end of ourselves so that we come to Christ. And in Christ, we get a new heart. And God gives us his spirit. Look what the spirit does. Causes us to walk in the statutes of the Lord. And become careful to obey his rules. You see, you have a new disposition. You have a new life in you that gives you desires that once you never had in your flesh. In your flesh dwelleth no good thing. Remember, we looked at it. Romans 7, verse 18. I think Rachel was. Romans 7, verse 18. That desire that you now have in your heart to obey the word of God is the result of the Spirit of God working in your life. So if you desire to worship the Lord, that's God doing the work in you, giving you new, fresh desires that once you never had before you were saved. This is the work of God. Remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 verse 12 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is new covenant. God is working in you, if you are born again of the Spirit today, God is working in you by Spirit, firstly, to will to do the will of God. And secondly, to obey the will of God. To will it, that means have the desire to do it, and then secondly, to do it. This is the work of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer. New desires. New longings. Yes, you say at times, there's times when I feel though my old nature would have me do things that are not right. Of course. But there's been a smashing of the hold of that old nature from over your decision making 
and you're a new creation in Christ, and therefore the Spirit works in you to will to desire the things that are of God so that you don't turn from them. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Let me read it to you again. 27, rather. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, and be, uh, sorry, and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit is working in you. Working to desire what is pleasing to God, to change you, to transform you. The new, this is newness of life. He's working in you. This is what happens when we're born again of the Spirit of God. We have this new life. We have a new heart. We have, we have the Spirit of God come in us. We have a new nature. And that's why we read in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9 that Christians don't simply go on living in sin. Once they've been born again of the Spirit, they are transformed. They have new desires. They don't want to live the way they once used to live. That's why they've come to Christ. 1 John 3 verse 9 says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In, a word, in, a, in other words, they don't go on willfully living in sin. Why? Why, John, is that the case? Well, for God's seed abides in him. His seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, God's working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure if you're born again of the Spirit of God. And so as that Spirit works and as that new nature begins to function, God's seed abide in you, his word being in you. You can't go on practicing sin, can you? You've been transformed. You have a new life. You're changed. Now in 1 Peter chapter 1, talking about the seed, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23, we read these words. Let's read from verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. That seed abides in the heart of the believer. According to 1 John 3, 9, continues. And then in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, it says that of the nature of that seed, that it's incorruptible. In other words, it's not liable to decay, it's not perishable. See the power of that life in you, the power of the word in you, the power of God by his spirit in you, the glorious truth of a new nature. All these things are God's means of bringing his child right through to a place where ultimately they're fit for glory. And they live forever in the presence of God. What a wonderful thing this is. What do we go on to read in Hebrews chapter 13? And verse 20, as we come to a close. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now, do you notice that? Equip you that that basically speaks to make you fit, to prepare you, to complete you thoroughly. That's what the word means. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Notice the next bit. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight by equipping us with everything good that we might do his will. Such is the grace of God, the mercy of God, the wonder of the salvation that we're in, the love of God. How often do we contemplate these things? 
How often do we think about these things? Do we know them? Do we know that our old nature is dead? We can't put our confidence in that, but we've been raised to newness of life. That includes everything that I've mentioned from all these verses concerning our salvation. The Christian isn't somebody who's just simply got new resolutions for the next year. The Christian is somebody who's been created anew by the Lord, by the mercy of God, transformed by the power of God. Friends, may the Lord help us to recognize something of what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That is the power of working. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him head as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Glory be to the name of the Lord. Well, let me remind you of this verse. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, every time you think about it, should remind you of the new life he's given you in him. A victorious life, an overcoming life. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. 1 John 5 verse 4 and previously 1 John 4 verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's amazing. No wonder Paul goes on to say in verse 5 of chapter 6 of Romans... For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It is a wonderful thing for us to remember. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Reckon upon it. Reckon upon it. Add up the sums. It's reality. And live in the good of this glorious resurrection life. So when you think today about the Lord Jesus risen from the dead, think, well, the Lord has done a resurrecting work in my life. He's raised me from the dead. And he's given me a life that will go on forever because his life goes on forever. And his life is in me and I am in his. And he is my life. May the Lord help us in the days ahead. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we thank you so much for the wonders of your word. But we thank you so much for the glory of this new covenant that you've brought us into. Lord, who are we that the Holy Spirit should dwell in us? But here we are, Lord, captivated by a glorious calling and a glorious gospel. We thank you that Jesus is risen from the dead. And we have life because he is our life, our risen life. Hallelujah. 
Be glorified in our day. Lord, be glorified today in our lives. Help us to live with dependency upon the Holy Spirit for everything. In Jesus' name, to your glory. Amen. Amen.